O Lord, would you fill our hearts with Easter joy for your glory. Amen. Well, good morning. As we, uh, this morning, we've been traveling through the Bible, really, a little excursion through the contests in the Bible, the times when God and his people were put to the test. And you know, they were all pointing, as Katrina said, they were all pointing to something even more amazing than before. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, did something even more amazing than sending fire at Mount Carmel. He came into this world as a human being. Jesus, who came into the world, he came to join our dysfunctional family called the human race. He came into this world as a human being. And with his words, he told us how he was the one true God, the one that we've been waiting for. And also in his actions and the things that he did, the miracles, the amazing deeds, he showed us that he was God. But you know, even with all that evidence, with all of that proof, people still weren't sure. Some people thought maybe Jesus is the real God, or maybe he isn't. Maybe there are lots of gods, or maybe there is no God at all. Friends, from the youngest to the oldest this Easter Sunday, are you sure about Jesus? Are you sure about who he is and what that means for us? On our journey through history, through the Bible, it was time for the biggest, the most powerful God contest of all on another mountain called Mount Zion. Jesus explained the rules that he would come back to life after he had died. Then you'll know he really is who he says he is. And he will give life to everyone who is on his team. On Good Friday, he took responsibility for all our failures. He let people kill him on a cross, place him in a tomb. He was completely dead. And for three days, nothing happened. It looked like Jesus had lost. And that's where we meet Jesus in our passage in John's gospel this morning. It looks like bad news because Jesus had faced the ultimate body of death itself. And it looked like he had lost. And you know, this morning as we think about this subject of death, Jesus' death, I appreciate all of us come with different experiences. Some of us this Easter Sunday will come with heavy hearts, with sadness, with grief. I'm with you, and I've been praying for you this morning. And please do take the opportunity to receive prayer, if that is you, from me or someone else before you leave today. You see, death is the ultimate statistic, isn't it? One in one of us will die. When we get a letter from the undertaker, it, it, doesn't, say, uh, it doesn't say yours faithfully, rather yours eventually. We'll all face it, won't we? But if we're a Christian here this morning, we can face death with a wonderful certainty. Because when you're on team Jesus, death may get you, but it cannot hold you. Because in the ultimate God contest, Jesus beat death with life. The contest is over. Jesus had won by rising back to life. His dead body began to breathe again, as we were singing about earlier on. 
our glorious, incredible, wonderful, super savior, Jesus will live forever and ever. Hallelujah. That's why this Easter Sunday, we join with 2.2 billion Christian believers around the world to celebrate that Jesus is alive. But we're gonna think this morning about what difference does Easter, what difference does Jesus dying and rising again make to each one of us? And there's three things we're gonna look at. Uh, The first one is you face the facts. And I've got a little action for that. You face the facts, like a little tick, okay? Should we say that together after three? We face the facts. Then you hear your name. One, two, three. You hear your name. And then you join his family. One, two, three, join his family. Let's do it all together. You face the facts, you hear your name, you join his family. Boys and girls, as we think more deeply about these things, please do be filling in those sheets that are in front of you. And there's some gaps to fill in as we go through, which I'd love you to do. Notice where our passage in John chapter 20 begins there in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. John, who wrote this part of the Bible, is very keen on historical details in his eyewitness accounts. But he's also communicating something deeper here, something that was going on while it was still dark. We're at the tomb of Jesus in the dark. We have a grieving woman looking for something to do to remember her friend who has died. The body has gone. Darkness. In the 1800s, a man called Leo Tolstoy experienced a time of darkness in his life, later in life. As a younger man, he had written great novels like War and Peace, considered one of the greatest ever books written. He had it all. He had fame, wealth, success, recognition. But in his 50s, he really came to the end of himself as he stared death in the the face and he asked the question, is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by the inevitability of death? Tolstoy is basically saying, what's the point in life if death is the end of the story? Death makes it meaningless. That's an amazing admission from a a guy who wrote War and Peace. I think just reading War and Peace is an achievement in itself. But this guy had written it, but in the face of death, it meant nothing. And he realized this about every aspect of his life. He had sought meaning in his life, in family life. As a man who never did things by halves, he had 13 children. But that didn't solve the problem of meaning. It didn't solve the problem of death. It only heightened the problem because he speaks of looking at his beloved children and realizing that one day they would be dust. You see, death doesn't shorten our life. Death calls our lives into question. What does it all mean if we were going to end up as dust anyway? That's actually step one of meeting Jesus. Tolstoy found Christian faith after taking that step when we come before God in total weakness, knowing that we bring nothing to him except our weakness. That's step one. When we get to the end of ourselves, we face the facts. One, two, three. We face the facts. 
Did you notice all those factual details in the Bible reading? Our passage is full of them. Let me just read again from verse 3. Mary's told the disciples about the missing body. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John is actually telling us, as the writer of the gospel, that he won the race. He does it a few times on the theme of contests. Verse 5, he bent over and looked at it, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Laborious, isn't it? Why are all these details written down? Well, let me blind you with some really good theology this morning. The details are written down because they actually happened. Because it's just how eyewitnesses remember it. You know, John is so humble, he doesn't name himself until the very end of the gospel, but he still wants you to know that he can beat Peter in a race. Peter might be the chief spokesman of the disciples, but John's the fastest. And John records details. The linen was like lace, the burial cloth was like lad. Peter went in, I went in second. Why would anyone write like this if they were making up a story? The answer to that is that they wouldn't. John's not writing a fairy tale or a myth or a legend. John is writing eyewitness testimony, facts. Pretty much every historian in the ancient world agrees with that. Even atheist historians can see that Jesus was born, he lived, he taught, he did incredible deeds, he gained a following, he got in trouble with the authorities, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he was laid in a tomb. Three days later, the tomb was empty. And all his followers had experiences of the risen Jesus which completely rocked their worlds and transformed them into people who turned the world upside down. Those are the facts of the case. But you might say, people don't rise from the dead. No, they don't. But what if Jesus really is the eternal Son of God? What if he's actually the life source of the world? Well, then the resurrection makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It gives us only the only explanation that actually fits the facts. But you see, the disciples and Mary had facts too. They were surrounded by facts, but they needed something more. They needed our next point. They needed to hear their name. One, two, three, you hear your name. We're getting less enthusiastic. We need to do that again. One, two, three, you hear your name. I just love the story of Mary in this passage. Isn't it beautiful? Verse 11, she's crying, she's weeping, she's bewildered, she's lost, lashing eyes at everyone. Did you take the body? Did you? But Jesus is on hand to reveal the truth. The amazing thing is how he reveals himself. Think of all the ways that Jesus could have revealed himself to Mary. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary 
doesn't recognize him as much as he recognizes her. She doesn't name him as much as he names her. He says, Mary, and in a word, in a moment, the world is different. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to hear Jesus say that one word, Mary? Here, the Son of God, he's been abandoned and deserted by his friends. He took all of our sins onto himself. He dealt with them. But now he's burst through to the other side of death and he calls Mary by her name. He still knows her. He still loves her. It's personal. And suddenly Mary knows the truth, not just the facts that Jesus died and rose. Now she knows it's for her. This morning you may have come to the end of yourself. You may have faced the facts. You might be prepared to say, yes, I suppose the resurrection is the most logical, plausible explanation of the facts, but it won't make a difference for you unless it's personal. Do you realize that Jesus died and rose for you? We face the facts. We hear our name. Thirdly, we join his family. One, two, three. We join his family. You know, we're used to thinking about Jesus dying for us. We, we hear about it every week. We sing about it every week. It's what we do. We rehearse this all the time. But do we know that Jesus actually also rose for us? In John 14, he says, because I live, you also will live. Jesus is, is, is like, if you can imagine, a black curtain and a needle. Jesus is the needle that pierces through the darkness of death and comes out the other side. And we are connected to that thread. Like the needle and a thread, he pulls us through death with him. Jesus didn't just die for us, he rose for us. He wants us to know everything that he's done and has been through was for us. This Easter Sunday morning, let me assure you, this Jesus who knew Mary, who knew Mary's name, he knows you. He knows your name. He didn't go through Easter for his own sake. He did it for you. He'd rather die for you than live without you. Realize that Jesus calls your name. We are not bigger than death, but Jesus is. He really did rise again. So we can face the facts. We could hear our name and join his family. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I do pray for anyone this morning who is not sure about Jesus. Lord, would you help each one of us to face the facts, to hear Jesus calling our name so that we might join in the family of God. Lord Jesus, thank you that that invitation is open for each one of us, no matter how old or how young, no matter our background, no matter our situation, no matter how bad we feel that we are. Jesus, his arms are open wide. Oh Lord, would we come to him?
and find our place in his family. In Jesus' name, amen.